Welcome to The Excellent Fiduciary, a podcast from Roland Chris, where we explore what it takes to meet and exceed the demands of managing an employee benefit plan in today's complex market. From regulatory developments to fiduciary news and practical tips, tune in to The Excellent Fiduciary for your step-by-step guide in achieving compliance and confidence in a new fiduciary era. Now let's begin today's show with an introduction from our Roland Chris host. Well, thank you, Ashley. And to our audience, welcome to this episode of the Excellent Fiduciary Podcast. I'm glad you joined us because you'll have the unique opportunity to hear our guest expert who will provide a lot of helpful information for executives and managers of 401k and 403b plans. He's a widely sought after expert in plan operations and is the ideal professional for you to hear. And I want to introduce him to you now. Daniel Williams is the Director of Audit and Assurance Services for Laporte CPAs and Business Advisors. Daniel is co-leader of Laporte's Employee Benefit Plan Services Group. He's had extensive experience in providing audits of employee benefit plans, including 401k, pension, and profit-sharing plans. And in addition to audits, Daniel has reviewed plans not subject to annual audits to identify areas of non-compliance with plan documents and ERISA, and to ensure that the plans meet applicable filing and disclosure requirements. He's a prominent participant in the AICPA's annual Employee Benefit Plan Conference, and Daniel earned his Bachelor of Science and Accounting degree from Louisiana State University and is a certified public accountant and a certified construction industry financial professional. Daniel has agreed to share with us today the insider perspectives about retirement plan operations he's acquired in an audit capacity. And Daniel, we're privileged to have you with us today. Welcome to the microphone. Thank you very much, Ronald. I'm uh, extremely honored and excited to be here with you today. So I appreciate the opportunity. Well, we appreciate you being here, of course. And I guess we'll start off by just setting the stage for this, that organizations that sponsor retirement plans qualified under the Employee Retirement Income Security Act, must focus on eliminating operational errors under normal conditions, and especially so during stressful times like the conditions in which the market finds itself today. Daniel, you're a prominent leader in your profession on best practices for managing ERISA plans. You've identified nine critical operational topics that are recurring deficiencies in plan audits, I'm sure our audience is eager to hear you discuss those topics and how to avoid errors while managing them. So without any further ado from me, let's get started. The floor is yours. Sure thing. Very exciting stuff, I know, for your audience. Um, So just a little bit of background about where I get my information uh, here at Laporte, the firm I work for. We audit about 110 401k and 403b plans audibly annually, and I should say Um, that we are, if you want to put quotes around it, we're the good auditors. We're the kind kind of auditors that the Department of Labor and the IRS require a plan sponsor to have when your plan generally reaches about 100 eligible employees. Uh, So we're the the good auditors that come in before the not-so-good auditors from the DOL or IRS come in. So we're here to help you know, make sure that operations are in place and that the plan's in compliance with all uh, the plan document and, and what the Department of Labor expects. I mentioned uh, 
eligible, the word eligible, because the general rule is that a plan that has over 100 eligible employees has to have an annual audit. One, one frequent issue that we see is many plan sponsors base that number on active participants, those who are actively participating, but that's not really how it should be calculated. The rule is to consider eligible employees in that number, regardless of whether or not they are participating. So that's one of the first things, one of the first deficiencies we find, particularly when a plan sponsor is just getting up to that hundred number threshold. So I'd advise your, your audience to keep that in mind. Um, so with that said, you know, we've got a lot of experience with dealing with a bunch of different types of plans and, and have the opportunity to see best practices across those plans. And, and for that reason, we've identified some of the frequent reoccurring issues that we have with plan sponsors and um, our recommendations about those issues. And I thought that today we could run through those briefly, just so that your audience uh, could maybe take some notes. And you know, if, if these are in place, wonderful. If these are concerns, they might take a note and double check to make sure everything's in place. Um, you ready for me to get started, Ronald? Absolutely. Okay. All right. So first and most common, this may not surprise your audience, but the most common deficiency that we see is the failure to remit employee deferrals on a timely basis. And very briefly, the Department of Labor and IRS has established a rule that says that from the date of your paycheck, the date you issue a paycheck, the plan sponsor is responsible to, as soon as feasible, remit their employees' deferrals to the record keeper. And the idea behind this is that they don't want the plan sponsor holding on to that money. They can view it as the plan sponsor taking a loan from the, from the employee, and they want to make sure that in the participant's interest that that money gets deferred and deposited into their 401k account as soon as possible. Now, what we've experienced in Department of Labor auditors is that if, if your plan is audited, they will take a look at your entire year's worth of paychecks. And as soon as you were able to remit one paycheck to the record keeper, you've established a benchmark and they're going to hold all the other pay periods to that same benchmark. So mm -hmm. essentially the 15th business day um, after the pay period rule is thrown out of the window. So our advice to plan sponsors is to set a policy, set a procedure to immediately after pay period, remit those to the record, record keeper. <clears throat> Dan, uh, Daniel, uh, we've heard plan sponsors uh, promote the idea in their minds that the 15-day business rule is a safe harbor. Uh, but it, it sounds from what to me, from what you're saying, there is no real such thing as a safe right. harbor on the remittance issue. There's, there's really not. And I can tell you from an audit perspective, um, we don't require a plan sponsor to report a deferral as late unless it, it exceeds the 15th business day past the pay period. Um, however, we do know that if the Department of Labor comes in, they're going to be much tighter, much more stringent on that benchmark and hold any pay period accountable as late um, that exceeds that benchmark that you've established. So 
again, I, you know, my recommendation is to, to forget the 15th business day, forget what the Department of Labor may or may not do, and just get it right from the get-go. Um, we advise that you have a, a backup plan in place if, if whomever is responsible for emitting those deferrals is out of town or on vacation. Make sure that somebody understands that process and can take over those duties while that person's out. Um, and then lastly, you know, we do see a good bit of uh, plan sponsors that may have multiple pay periods within a month. Maybe they pay salaried employees in a certain pay period and hourly in another. Uh, there are cases where uh, a plan sponsor may group all of those pay periods together and then remit. And that's something that, that we strongly advise against because it is on the pay period level, regardless of when you do it, how often you have it, weekly, biweekly, you should be remitting those deferrals immediately after each pay period. Okay, so that, that, that's enough about the most common one. Um, secondly, let's get into um, documentation for uh, a, an employee's decision not to participate. And this is another big one. This, we hear a lot about this from the Department of Labor. Essentially, what they're looking for in their audits is to make sure that you've given all your employees the opportunity to participate. We always advise that if an employee decides not to participate for whatever reason, that you maintain some sort of manual record that the employee chose not to participate. And I say this because you don't want to ever be in an instance where you have no proof to say that you offered that employee the opportunity. So particularly, you know, with auto enrollment and auto enrollment plans, make sure that, you know, you've got your, your employees uh, filling out an opt-out form or uh, negatively electing to participate electronically, but making sure that you have some record of that election. And that's all in, to protect the plan sponsor in the case that, you know, a disgruntled employee said, goes to the Department of Labor and says, they never gave me the opportunity. So that's really just the best practice recommendation there. And in terms of, I'll move into the next one, in terms of documentation that we're looking for as part of our audits, uh, the Department of Labor is also looking to make sure that plan sponsors are actively monitoring the plan. And how can you do this? You can do this by maintaining records of any types of meetings that your 401k committee may have to discuss the plan. Uh, keep those minutes available. I would advise you to create minutes if you don't already for those meetings. And more importantly, I'd say when you meet with your, your advisor or your third-party administrator or a record keeper, which I'm hoping you guys do annually, uh, that you retain evidence of those meetings and, and some sort of plan review document as support to show that you're satisfying your fiduciary responsibilities if the Department of Labor ever questions it. Daniel, uh, just a quick question for you as a plan auditor. When you look at uh, the evidence of fiduciary meetings, whether they be committees or uh, informal sessions, right? Are you looking to test the subject matter that's covered in those meetings? Uh, what, what about that? Many, uh, oh, years ago, I think fiduciary committees felt they were performing their duty by reviewing the investments and spent a lot of time on the investment lineup. 
but it seems in recent years that committees are being held accountable to cover more than just the investments. Uh, would a plan audit, uh, I guess is my question, would a plan audit uh, look to test the components of the meeting agenda? So our audit would not test the components. We'd be looking for any significant activity, such as uh, decisions on amendments of the plan or, or, or decisions to implement auto enrollment, change the profit sharing calculation, and anything like that is what we'd be focused on from the audit. But to your point, Ronald, the, the Department of Labor has a very, very broad list, I'm sure, of what they'd be looking for as content in those meetings. And I think it extends well beyond just looking at the investment mix and the investment performance. I think that it extends to, um, you know, analyzing the fees of your service provider. You pay in your, your CPA for the audit, uh, something that's in line with, with, with what's expected. Are you paying your record keeper your third-party administrator fees that are reasonable. Um, you know, are we looking at different provisions for our plan, whether it's auto enrollment or some sort of other provision that would benefit our employees? The, the whole idea of this is for the Department of Labor to feel very good and walk away smiling that you are taking care of your employees. Okay. Another uh, deficiency that we see quite frequently is the calculation of an employee deferral. And what I mean by that is a lot of times that calculation may be based on a compensation that is not the correct compensation base. So, and uh, I'll give you just a, a quick example. Many times um, companies issue bonuses to their employees. Well, the plan document the, your plan document may specifically exclude bonuses from that calculation or specifically include them. Uh, over time, any extra pay may or may not be included in that compensation base. And so we encourage plan sponsors just to be aware of what your plan defines as the correct compensation base in which those deferrals are calculated. And I can tell you, a lot of times our, our plan sponsors that have been around for a long time just say, you know, we, this is how it's always been done. Mm -hmm. And we encourage you to, uh, before you go to bed at night, enjoy some, some exciting reading and read through that plan document once a year just to familiarize yourself with, with the provisions and, and what it's calling for in terms of compensation. Next, uh, fidelity bond coverage. Fidelity bond is an insurance coverage that is required by the Department of Labor uh, for a plan sponsor to have, and it protects against employee theft, uh, fiduciary, uh, lack of fiduciary uh, diligence, and that fidelity bond has to be equal to 10% of the beginning of the year amount of net assets. Now, that can be difficult to track, on an annual basis, that calculation would be required to track. So we always encourage, and we've actually seen a very, very large increase in the amount of plan sponsors who have uh, taken this advice, but there is typically an auto escalation clause that can be added to your fidelity bond to where that the amount of coverage automatically increases to be equal to 10% of your beginning of year value. 
so that if you if you have a fidelity bond in place, if you don't have one, you certainly need to get one. But if you have one in place, you might consider looking into an auto escalation clause just to make sure that you never that coverage never dips below the required minimum. Okay, moving on, uh, census information. So for those of you uh, who manage plans, you're probably familiar with the annual census, and that should be a list of all employees who received wages for the year under review. And that census information is typically sent to your third-party administrator so that they can perform the annual plan compliance testing, ADP, ACP, um, non-discrimination, top-heavy, those types of tests that are required. As an auditor, when we come in, we have to test that census. And, and what I mean by that is we would select a sample of employees and test the information that could change the results of the compliance testing. That could be date of birth of an employee, um, date of hire of an employee, employee status, anything that could affect that employee's eligibility to participate. And when we perform those tests, we have to obtain support for that date of birth or date of hire. And many, many times, you know, somebody may have been hired years and years ago, so there's not good support to support their uh, date of birth or date of hire. So we always encourage you and the plan sponsors to, to keep good, complete personnel files for all of your employees. Make sure you've got copies of driver's license, I-9s, employment agreements, whatever you have that if requested by the Department of Labor, you can say, hey, look, here, this is what verifies that date of birth. This is what verifies that date of hire. It's just a great practice to prevent any issues um, if you are audited by the Department of Labor. And very similar to that, Ronald, uh, another issue that we find is, and this one's actually more common because I do believe that it's more difficult to track. And this is support for pay rates. So, mm -hmm. you know, many times we'll see somebody's hired on their salary or their hourly rate is approved and, and signed off on. But as the years go by, they may receive cost of living increases or just ordinary raises. And those raises or cost of living increases may not always be formally documented. Well, I can tell you if the Department of Labor comes in and they try to recalculate a paycheck, they are going to look for support that that employee is being paid the approved amount of their pay rate. So maintaining some sort of pay rate change form or, or even if, if it's electronic, having some way of showing that that current amount that they're being paying was approved by an authorized supervisor, anything like that. There's many different ways that you can maintain support, but we strongly encourage you to do so and not just informally approve those pay rate increases. Okay, uh, forfeitures. Forfeitures are what occur when an employee uh, perhaps leaves or is terminated prior to being fully vested in the plan. And forfeitures are a return of the unvested portion of that employee's employer contributions. That was a handful to, uh, hope, hopefully that made some sense, but um, forfeitures are, are maintained in a forfeiture account within your plan and are essentially there for use of the plan sponsor. We strongly encourage you to use those forfeitures every year. 
I know some record keepers have some automated systems in place where those will be automatically applied, but if they aren't, we encourage the plan sponsors to look at that forfeiture account and, and use it every year. It's there for you. So most plan documents will say, okay, you can use your forfeitures to reduce the amount of the employer match for a certain pay period. If, we, if we're going to match $10,000 and we've got 2,000 in forfeitures, then we're just going to send in a check for 8000 8, to the record keeper. Um, another common use of forfeitures is to pay plan expenses. So anything that's not paid directly out of the plan sponsor's account, um, if the plan allows it, you can pay those expenses with forfeitures. And some of those examples would include your auditor fees. So just avoid having those forfeitures accumulate. It, it's I like to think of it as a credit to the sponsor. And if it just sits there and sits there and gets bigger and bigger, you're really not taking advantage of that. So we always encourage you to use your forfeitures. And I'm talking a lot. Lastly, uh, and this one, good. <laughs> lastly, we will uh, finish with one that will probably surprise many people. I know it will surprise you, Ronald, because I know you guys um, do an excellent job of this or ensuring that this is in place. But we often see that there is no formalized investment policy statement. and. This is one of the things that as long as I've been in this practice that the Department of Labor has looked for when they've performed an audit. And it can be uh, a document that's very extensive or it can be a document that's very brief, but generally what it is intended to do is uh, establish some sort of parameter or baseline of how management intends to operate the plan and decide on investment decisions. So it's, it just creates uh, some sort of policy for you to lean on for, for your investment committee or your 401k committee to lean on when operating the plan. And, and so it's, in my opinion, I, can, I guess I can see how some plan sponsors, if they don't have a good financial advisor, may not have the, the knowledge or maybe even the, the idea of questioning whether or not we have an investment policy statement. But I'm here to tell you that the Department of Labor is absolutely going to look for one. So if you don't have one, please get with your, your advisor, maybe even your third-party administrator. And a lot of times they'll have some, some templates that can be modified uh, to your organization, but just be, be, be sure to have one in place. Well, Daniel, as you had promised, you've covered nine uh, really critical areas, and I would imagine that there are uh, some, maybe many plan sponsors who hear you talk about these deficiencies from time to time who will realize that they've got some work to do. So for, for a plan sponsor who has the need to remediate some of these areas you've touched on, what's their approach? How do they do it? Well, I, I think it's um, completely irrational to think that everybody is going to have all of these in place at all time. I mean, it, it's, a, it's a lot. And this is just, we just touched on a few of them, Ronald. So um, even the best plans with the best practices, you know, occasionally there's going to be a case where all these checks and balances aren't in place. Um, I, I, my team's never enter into an audit anticipating that everything will be perfect. My, my suggestion would be just to take notes, just to ask questions 
reach out to your 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 service partners, your your CPAs, your third party administrator, your record keeper, your financial advisors, just to keep um, up to date on what's required with uh, these plans and the operation of these plans, and do your best. I think the Department of Labor, if you're audited, they'll be able to see that that you're doing your best, and 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 that kind of goes back to maintaining records of meetings and showing that you're you're speaking to your service providers. I, I, I think as long as you're putting your best foot forward and that it's evidenced in some sort of you know minutes or, or, or plan review documents, I think that you'll be okay. And the, and the Department of Labor, from what we've seen, is fair in allowing you time to correct any errors that have been identified. So this stuff sounds very scary, and it can be, but just be proactive, um, ask for education, and and be willing to make changes when those are recommended. Well, great counsel. Good advice. And uh, I hope the uh, pens are hitting the notepads as you're speaking. (laughs) (laughs) Well, during our discussions uh, in preparation for today's podcast, you mentioned three items that I think our audience would be interested in hearing your comments. Uh, They included a Department of Labor initiative that's supported by a, a, a new compliance questionnaire. You also talked about the impact on plant sponsors when they don't implement suggested changes to operational deficiencies. And then the third item was the new 401k plan auditing standard. Uh, in the time remaining on our podcast, would you take a few minutes and cover those three items for us? Absolutely. Um, <clears throat> so to start with your first one, there is a new um, program that has been implemented, and it's by the IRS. Uh, the IRS has piloted this new program, and it's it's called a pre-examination compliance program. And just a little bit of background, um, the IRS or Department of Labor can select any plan sponsor, any plan, uh, 401k plan for audit for any reason. And many, many times there's been no rationale for how those plans are selected, even the cleanest plans have been selected from what we've seen. Mm. So I believe that this program has been implemented as a way to, uh, how do I say this uh, properly, but maybe alleviate the, the work necessary of a Department of Labor or IRS agent and push that responsibility onto the plan sponsors and cover a much broader base of plan sponsors. So what they're doing is sending a letter or a notice to plan sponsors. And we have no idea, we're not privy to how those plan sponsors are, are selected. But if you receive a letter, the IRS is going to ask you to complete a form that shows that your plan is in compliance with the plan document and the expectations of the IRS. So our advice is, if you receive that letter, absolutely do not ignore that letter. Um, I, th- I believe that the letter will give you 90 days to complete a compliance questionnaire and return it. Uh, as soon as you get it, start that process. It gives you the opportunity to self-review and, and self-correct any issues that you find. And if you send that letter back and you've shown that you've performed a self-review and corrected any issues, I believe that will take you off the radar for a future audit. However, if you don't return that letter, I am of the belief that that's immediate red flag um, to the IRS and and a high 
probability that your your plan would be selected for further review by the the IRS. So the takeaway there is if you're if you're unfortunate enough to be one of the plan sponsors who receives one of these letters, please, please, please acknowledge it, follow it, and and get them off uh, or take yourself off their radar. All right, that's uh, something I think uh, anyone listening to us today is going to take very seriously. Yeah, and I'll tell you, it's I believe it was um, implemented June of this year, so two months ago. So I, I expect to hear plan sponsors across the country receiving these notices. Secondly, um, we talked about the impact of whether or not a plan sponsor implements any suggestions of best practice. And this is really geared towards those who are having an annual audit. audit. Uh, at the end of an audit, you're probably familiar with a, a management letter or an internal control letter or best practice letter from your, from your CPA firm. Please, please, please take that seriously and implement what you can. The result of not implementing those changes can be an increase in what's called audit risk. And so the CPA firm in the next year audit has the responsibility to assess audit risk. And if previous communications to the plan sponsor were not implemented, then that audit risk obviously goes up and that can result in more or higher sample sizes, more testing for the CPA and, and quite frankly, more fees to the plan sponsor. So take it seriously, reach out, get their help, but I'd say implement any of those suggested changes that you can. And then, and then lastly, Ronald, you mentioned the new 401k auditing standard. There is a new standard out for plans uh, ended 12-31, December 31st, 2021. So the plans that are, the plan audits that are currently going on are subject to this new auditing standard. There's a lot of talk about this new auditing standard. Um, you know, some CPA firms may use this as an opportunity to, to build those fees up, but I am of the belief that it is not as big of an issue uh, to implement as some have made it out to be. There is going to be a new clarified audit opinion, so your audit report will look substantially different. It's going to be longer. It's going to include a lot more paragraphs, but it's going to be, it's intended to clarify the reading and make it easier to understand. Uh, the limited scope terminology, if you, if you recall, when you get a certification um, from your trustee or custodian, that limited scope uh, verbiage is now going away. So all of these audits under this new standard will be your typical uh, unqualified opinions in, in, in the good case, right? Um, as long as there's no issues. And there will be separate paragraphs in that opinion that talk about this, the investments that were certified and what, was what work was performed or not performed over those investments. So the biggest thing to a plan sponsor with this new accounting change is that they have responsibility to analyze the, the trustee or the the, the custodian to make sure that they're a qualified trustee or custodian to issue a certification letter. Fidelity or, or principal or voya who's widely recognized as a qualified uh, provider of that certification, then you really don't have much work to do here with this new standard. The, the work comes in when you're using a, a less known 
custodian or trustee who's certifying those investments, then you might have have a little bit of work to do just to ensure that they are a qualified institution. And, you know, nobody expects you to be able to make that uh, call on your own. So I would say reach out to your CPA, let them advise you on on what you need to look for to make that determination. So I, biggest thing about this new standard is don't be frightened by it. It's, it's not a terribly um, immense amount of new work that's going to be that's going to fall on the plan sponsors. Well, Daniel, thank you very much for all the wise insights you've given us today. Uh, the depth and scope of your expertise from a compliance viewpoint has been extremely valuable. And I deeply appreciate your sharing those gifts with us. They're obviously earned sure. uh, from textbooks, but more importantly, from real life experience. Working yes, with thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Plan yeah, sponsors yeah, and, well and the IRS. So we appreciate so much your firsthand frontline experience. Absolutely. Additional resources regarding the fiduciary role in employee benefit plan operations are available on our website at rolandchris.com. And as we wrap up this episode of the Excellent Fiduciary Podcast, I want to thank our audience for your participation. We enjoy receiving feedback, so please make your comments by email at excellentfiduciary, all one word, at rolandchris.com. We look forward to hearing from you, and I hope you'll join us on our next podcast. And until then, have a great day.